Hi, my name is Christy Kramer, and this is Michigan Unsolved, the true crime podcast that is solely focusing on unsolved cases in Michigan. There is no case too small. My goal is to give victims of unsolved crimes the voice they deserve. Hi friends, welcome back. I am uh, so glad to be here with you today. I am really looking forward to my weekend. Um, if I know a lot of you here are from Michigan and um, you all probably have heard about the Tulip Festival in Holland. Well, I've been a Michigander for 45 years and I have never been. And my brother and I are actually going to go. So I am extremely excited about that. We're going to head out tomorrow morning and we're going to um, check out one of the concerts and we're going to do a lot of, you know, all the touristy tulip things in Holland this weekend. So I'm really excited about that. Um, there is something that I wanted to, to kind of bring up before, um, before I get into today's case, as you as you remember, last week I discussed um, my the the fact that May was ALS awareness and my dad's uh, journey with that and him losing his battle, and I had didn't have any intention on speaking of this today because pancreatic cancer awareness I believe is like November. I'd have to look at that, but I'm pretty sure it's like November. But as I was scrolling through my uh, my memories on Facebook today, I'm reminded that two years ago, yesterday, uh, a a friend of mine um, actually, her, you know, she lost her husband. Her husband was a friend of mine as well, but she lost her husband to pancreatic cancer. And that popped up on my timeline from two years ago. And then as I scrolled down further, I see um, the pictures from my mom's funeral. Her funeral was May 11th. That is today's date, um, 2019. Um, and my mom also lost her battle with pancreatic cancer. So I, I just... It's just a reminder to to everyone the importance of advocation for your own health. Um, my mom suffered for a very, 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 very long time before she was diagnosed. She started having stomach pains in August of uh, 2018. And she was not diagnosed until the end of February 2019. And uh, she had had every freaking scan imaginable and scope, colonoscopies, scopes down the throat, scans, MRIs, every, she had so many different tests. Um, and uh, it literally took uh, like, like a crazy invasive scope to, to find the cancer that she had. But at that point, she was so, even though her cancer was not super far along and it was contained it had not spread she was only stage one but 
um, she had been so weak because the pain she had felt made it so difficult for her to eat that her body was so weak that she couldn't withstand chemo. And then she ended up having to have a surgery and she could not recover from that. And she ended up actually passing away about two months after her diagnosis. Um, again, I cannot tell you how many times I told my mom, look, I understand they're telling you that there's nothing wrong. At one point, somebody actually suggested that it was all in her head. Um, and I, but I kept telling her, I'm like, you have to push, you have to push, you have to push. And, you know, my parents were both, and let, we don't want to rock the boat. We, you know, the doctor says there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. Well, no, when you're sitting there sobbing because everything that you put in your mouth is making you, giving you this horrible pain. Well, what it was is that the tumor has pressed up against, um, it, it, the tumor was pressing up against something. And every time she would eat anything, it was passing this tumor and it was causing pain and um you know again she kept saying well the doctors are saying there's nothing wrong well obviously that wasn't the case so it's just a reminder and I will discuss um pancreatic cancer again when it comes time to that particular month but uh I just, today, when I, when I looked at these photos for my mom's funeral of us planting a tree in her memory, um, and I look at the photo of my friend, my dear friend, Rich, um, and his lovely family, and the fact that so many people are, are being diagnosed with, um, pancreatic cancer lately, you know, and, it's crazy. I don't, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, I hate, I'm not poking fun whatsoever when I say this, this is like legitimate, but do you ever, when you decide what kind of car you want to get, or when you buy a new car, do you ever notice that you see that car everywhere? Like when I, when I, when I got my blazer in July, I started seeing them like everywhere I looked, there was a blazer. And I kind of had the same feeling about, um, the cancer journey with my mom because, like, I don't know if you remember, Alex Trubeck from Jeopardy was diagnosed. And um, him and my mom were diagnosed very close together. And it was just like, how is this happening? And then other people were having getting it. And it, it just seemed like it was out of control. And then my aunt, um, honestly, my dad's sister. So, I mean, it, not even a blood relation of my mom's. Um, Thank God she was able to beat it. Um, so, and I, I told my brother a million times, you know, we've got it on both sides of the family. You know, we have got to make sure that we advocate for ourselves. And luckily we both have wonderful doctors, but it's just something I wanted to point out again. When I, when I look back at my mom's, at the day of my mom's funeral, and I think about how much I wish I would have, stood up more, fought for her more, pushed the doctors more, even if it was against her will, um, because somebody had to speak up. So I just, like I said, I just wanted to bring up a point of, um, self-advocation today. Um, and, you know, advocate for your loved ones, your children, your husband, your wife, your grandmothers, whoever, advocate for a friend. Sometimes 
sometimes some sometimes people who have no one need someone in their corner so you know if you can be that for somebody please do and that kind of in a way leads me to today's story um this is an extremely extremely tragic case when i first started uh researching unsolved cases in Michigan. I saw this name pop up so many times. And I don't know why it's taken me this long to to get into this one or to cover this one. But I'm I actually I kind of understand it now because it's it's a doozy. It's it kind of takes you on a on a wild bumpy ride. But this, this is the case of Eric Sterling Cross. And if you're looking to look this up on your own, just so you're aware, because the spelling is a little odd, his um, first name is Eric, E-R-I-K, and his middle name is Sterling, S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G, and then his last name, Cross, C-R-O-S-S. So just because it's a little different, I just wanted to put that out there in case you wanted to Google it yourself. But we're going to talk about what happened to 16-year-old Eric and how we are coming up very soon on the 40th anniversary of his murder and we, his, his family still does not have the justice that they so very much deserve. So Eric Cross was born December 25th, 1966. And he died June 26th, 1983. He was 16 years old at the time of his death. His parents were Ted and Mary Lou Cross, and he had a sister about four years younger by the name of Jackie. Growing up, uh, his dad, it sounds like his dad moved around, not moved around, but like the family moved around a few times for his dad's job. And they spent a good part of their childhood up in the, nor um, in the Upper Peninsula. And his sister Jackie remembers so many good times with her and Eric. It was just the two of them you know, the two siblings, and they were extremely close, even though they were four years apart. Um, and she says she can remember, you know, two tracking up there, you know, doing all kinds of stuff, you know, just spending a lot of time outdoors. Eric loved um, hunting and fishing, and he loved music, and he was just an all-around really, really, really good guy. And they actually ended up moving to the town of Vicksburg in the fall of 1982 due to Ted Cross's job transfer. And at that point, Eric was just starting his senior year. So I'm not his senior, his sophomore year. So he was in the 10th grade. Um, like I said, he was 16 and uh, he was starting to make friends. You know, he, he had developed a close friendship whom he considered a best friend was somebody by the name of Bill Cook. And there, I hate to, this is really, I'm going to, I'm going to be really honest with you. This one's tricky 
Okay. Eric died an extremely horrific, horrific, horrific way. There is no way around that. Okay. Anything that happened after he left his home on Saturday, June 25th cannot be trusted. Anything that, anything that is said to have happened, you just don't know. There are so many stories that I have heard like so many different reports and so many different interviews and stories about, about that night that it's like literally the entire evening is and night is conjecture. There's like no facts whatsoever. So I, I really want to kind of give you guys a lot of what the different stories are. But regardless of what happened that night, Eric Cross died. Not only did he die, but it was a deliberate act. That was so gruesome. I can understand why it's taking me so long to cover this case. I think it would be one thing if we did not have any idea who who did this. But the fact that there's little doubt as to who did this and they are still walking around bothers me even more. So there's going to be a lot of kind of jumping around here. I'm going to kind of try to give you as much information as possible, but I do want you to remember that that very little of this has been proven. Probably why we haven't gotten a conviction at this point because, you know, everybody tells their version, you know, we witness statements and there's just this is a very, very sad situation. I, I have to tell you that. But on Saturday, June 25th, 1983, Eric's sister Jackie remembers him getting ready in front of the mirror. Look of Love by ABC was playing on the radio and that memory is ingrained in her mind was the last time that she saw her brother alive. Now, Eric was supposed to go to Bill's house. That is the friend that he had made during his time in Vicksburg. Did I mention that? They were living in Vicksburg, Michigan, which is a little bit, um, it's in the, Cal, I believe, like the Kalamazoo County. And Bill actually lived with his uncle at the time. So, Eric, his dad, Ted, and Bill actually had plans for Sunday, June 26th. They were going to go to the Spirit of Detroit Regatta boat race on the Detroit River, which is about a three-hour drive from Vicksburg. So, you know, Ted had reminded Eric, you got to make sure, you know, you... But yeah, I'm sure he told him, make sure you're rested, don't do anything, you know, don't stay up too late or whatever... There are two different scenarios that 
things have kind of gone back and forth on. I've, I've heard it reported both ways. One said that Eric was actually supposed to stay at Bill's house that evening, um, spend the night there, and then that they would go, they would either get picked up or meet back at Eric's house the next day to go to the race. Another thing was that uh, Eric was not going to be spending the night at Bill's and that Eric's dad had told him to make sure he was home earlier. But like I said, like every article that I've read, every interview that I've read, it tells you something different. You know, it's just so, it's very confusing, honestly. But like I said, there, there's just, there's definitely like the final, nothing's going to change the, the final act. Okay. Um, so I don't really care what happened. You know, what, what the plan was, that doesn't matter. What matters is what happened. So, um, like I said, from the moment Eric left his house, nothing that is actually known to the public is, can be considered fact because we just don't know. That night is literal. the truth of that night is literally buried in 40 years of lies. Um, the only thing that we know for sure is that by 5.30 a.m. on Sunday, June 26th, the Cross family would never be the same. And as I go forward with the many stories that have been told over the years about what happened that night, and I don't know which are true, if any of them are true, but regardless, someone or someones are responsible for the horrific, brutal death of the 16-year-old child. So, as I mentioned, Eric had started at Vicksburg High in the fall of 1982 after his family moved to the small town, um, which in the early 80s had a population of approximately 2,200. Maybe just a little bit above that, but around 19, in the early 80s, you were looking at about 22. He was known as a good student who pretty much stayed out of trouble. Um, he was a good kid, you know. Uh, not long after moving to the small town, Eric met another boy, as I mentioned before, Bill Cook, and they became fast friends. Bill was dating a girl with the last name that was widely known in town. Her name was Maybrit Spaulding, and Spaulding was known all over town. Um, May, Bit, May Britt, sorry, had uh, two brothers, Brian Jr. and Brenton. Brenton, um, who was known as Brent, was basically known as the town bully. Uh, people knew that you did not cross Brent, and if he made a threat, he did intend on following through with it. And during the 82 to 83 school year, which was, again was Eric's sophomore year, Eric had quite a few run-ins with Brent. Eric was the new kid in school and Brent saw him as an easy target. He picked on him quite often. But when Eric would have conversations with one of his female classmates, Brent's anger and torment of Eric just increased. Eric shared at least one class with a girl named Amber Thomas. And in the early spring and early summer of 83, Amber was Brent's girlfriend. And there are, there is some speculation that Amber was a flirty 
girl and she may have been flirting with Eric. Um, and that could have increased Brent's torment. But it honestly, just from what I've heard about Brent Spaulding, um, it sounds like if she even looked at another boy, he was going to kind of fly off the handle. So I don't even know if it really was like a flirtatious thing or if they were literally just two people talking, because I really think that may have been enough to send him over the edge. So one of Eric's classmates who is, her name is Missy and she is actually now a champion of bringing awareness to Eric's case and getting him and his family the justice that they deserve. But she gave an interview on a podcast and she remembered an instant where they were changing classes and a teacher kind of shoved her and other students back like up against the wall or the lockers to kind of protect them from a fight that was going on in the hall. And the fight was between Brent and Eric all because Brent saw Eric and Amber talking as they left the class that they shared. So, I mean, you're just talking about two people walking out of a class together talking, and that was enough to set him off. And there were other instances like this. Um, there was one that I, that I read about where, Eric, where Brent had like, run out of nowhere and kind of like body slammed Eric into some vending machines for really no reason. Um, so that's going to take us, you know, th this happened a lot over the school year. Eric was only there for the one year. Um, but by the early summer, it was graduation party season in June of 1983. And on Saturday, the 25th of June, there was a party planned at a lake house that was only about a mile down the road from Eric's house. And it was a very, I don't want to say rural because there were a lot of houses, but it wasn't like a subdivision that you'd see around now. They were very spread out. And the, I, I even took like a Google map, um, what do you call it, um, where you can drop the little yellow guy down on the map and you can actually travel it. And this, this is 40 years later, mind you, and there's still not a lot out there. So that really gave me um, like a visual of what it would have been 40 years ago and how much more desolate it would have been at that time. So if, you know, if there's 15 houses on this mile stretch now, maybe there were only five back then, you know. So Bill and Eric had made plans to attend this party together. And there are a couple of different scenarios about how Eric got to the party. Um, but let's talk about the party in itself. This wasn't just any regular grad party. This was a keg party. Kids paid $2 to get in and it was all the beer they could drink. And I did see something about at least three kegs were gone through, possibly four. Um, and what's even sadder and scarier is that the parents of the graduate were actually on site and they were aware of the underage drinking. To me, that is heartbreaking. Shame on those parents. Shame on any parents who knowingly 
allow something like this to happen. I mean, this is, this goes way beyond, you know, letting my kid have a sip of wine or something, you know, um, this is knowingly allowing a bunch of underage kids become knockout drunk. Right next to a lake, too, which, like, seriously, what are you thinking, you know? So, one of the, um, one of the theories, I don't really know if it's a theory, but one of the things that I had read or heard was that Eric and Bill were going to go to the party together, okay? Eric, that was the plan, Another one was that Eric was going to ride his, like his motorbike. He had gotten, he'd gotten on his motorbike, made it to the corner where there was a corner store and some of his friends saw him and they said, Hey, you know, we'll, we'll drive you. So Eric then takes his bike back to the house and they pick him up in the car and then they go pick up Bill and go to the party. I don't know if that's accurate. I do not know if that's true. That is just one of the scenarios from that night. Like I said, all of these are essentially rumors, theories. None of it is proven. Um, the reason I say none of it is proven is because you can have five people all giving different stories. They're all saying that they're witnesses and they're giving they're giving statements, but everybody's saying something different. So I'm trying to cover as much as I can, but just know that none of this is proven. Um, okay. So then as the nights and events go on, Eric drank a lot. And I, I mean a lot, a lot, like he was drinking for a couple of hours straight and during the party, um, I, it sounds like when he first got there, Brent was not there. That's what it sounds like. I do not know if that's true or not. But from what I've from what I've heard is that Eric was actually really enjoying the party. Him and him and um, Bill were enjoying themselves, and then Brent shows up. And from what I read, the whole mood of the party changed. And at one point, Brent. And Eric actually got into an altercation. I don't know if it was a fight. I don't know if, you know, just Brent hit Eric or whatever. But Eric was knocked to the ground by Brent. Um, and then that was pretty much it. It just kind of ended at that. Then um, Bill decided to go swimming in the lake. Because I said this was a lake house. It was very close to the water. Bill ended up deciding to go into the lake with a girl, not his girlfriend, it sounds like, just some random girl from the party. And he let, he left Eric sitting in a lawn chair near the lake. Now, this actually came from Bill's mouth himself. Okay, so I don't know if that's true or not, but this is the statement that Bill told a reporter. So at about 1 a.m., Eric gets up out of the chair and decides he's going to head home alone on foot. Now, remember, 
rumors state that he got a ride, but he's actually going to head home on foot. And remember, he's extremely intoxicated at this point, and he's literally stumbling down the road towards his house. At about 1.30, he is seen by witnesses. Now, I'm going to say that this is probably true because this is according to witness reports that I do not believe were attached to the party. So I'm going to, I'm going to say that at 1.30 AM, Eric was seen alive at the gas station, which is at the corner near his house, very close to his house, just a few hundred yards away. So it was extremely close to his house. Um, there is a report. Now this is where things kind of get a little tricky. There is a report that Ted who's Eric's father, was awakened around 1.30 a.m. to the sound of someone trying to enter the house. But he assumed it was Eric coming home, so he went back to sleep. And then there's also a report that around 1.30 a.m. there were dogs barking. Now, I watched an interview with Eric's sister, and she does not believe that this is true. She says that if he had attempted to come home that night and tried to get into the house and couldn't, he would have knocked on her window. And she also says that he was not supposed to come home that night. He was supposed to be staying at Bill's. So why would her dad assume that it was Eric coming home? So that's where things get a little iffy. Um, unfortunately, Eric's father passed away in 2007, so I I do not have like a statement from him, but I, I know I wasn't 16 at the time, but I remember being young and being extremely drunk at a very young age. Number one, like when you're young like that, your body does not handle liquor the way it does as an adult. Okay. You're going to be much more disoriented and I'm sure he was not thinking clearly. He could have made it home and never, like, he may have had plans to spend the night at Bill's house, but the liquor, the alcohol that he was drinking completely messed with that plan in his head. And then he probably never even gave it a thought to knock on his sister's window. So again, you know, it really could go either way. Now, if you're going off of that theory that at 1.30 a.m. he was at his house, then at some point between 1.30 a.m. when he was seen at the gas station and 5.30 a.m. when he was found, he was killed. So this is, like I said, it's it's extremely confusing because there's just, it, there's just no proof. And that's really like, I, oof. I just wish there was like a security camera. I know 1983, blah, 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 whatever. But yeah. So this is where like another theory comes in. Um, the gas station parking lot, it said that there were two cars at 1.30, a yellow car and a dark car. There is a report that the yellow car may have belonged to one of the parents of a party goer or the parent that was hosting the party. And then the dark car belonged to Brent Spaulding. Again, none of it's confirmed. Um, Some have come forward and said that Brent and some of the other 
I'm going, okay, I'm going to use this term here that has been used by the police on multiple occasions. And it's the term that they call the core group. And that is this group of about five or six individuals that they believe are responsible for Eric's death. Um, so I'm, you're going to hear me refer to the core group and I will list their names, but people have come forward and said that Brent and some of the other core group members were in the car in that parking lot at 1.30 a.m. Okay. So before we go into the speculation about what happened in that parking lot, let's go to 5 a.m. on Sunday, June 26th. At 5 a.m., both Ted and Mary Lou Cross were woken up to the sound of a car with a loud muffler pull into their driveway and turn around. Some reports actually state that this happened a few times. There's also a report that a neighbor who was outside at 5 a.m., which I'm a little iffy on that one. But this neighbor states that he saw this car, this dark car, and that there were at least two men and a woman in the car. Uh, the neighbor also told police that he heard a scream of help and possibly a woman saying, oh God, he's seen us. Now, you know how I feel. I've made this comment before. You know how I feel about eyewitness testimonies, especially in the dark. He may have heard what he heard. That's fine. But to say that there were two men and one woman in this car, the reason I'm, the reason I find this odd is because I think if you would have seen who was in the car, you would have seen Eric. You would have seen what happened. Um, if you, the, the houses are not close to the street. So if he was anywhere near his house, how would he been able to see that? And at 5 a.m. on June 26th, it's still relatively dark outside. So I don't know how much I trust the the gender of the people in the car and the number of people in the car. But I do feel confident if he said, oh God, if he says he heard, oh God, he's seen us and then heard a scream of help or something that I more so believe. So then at 530, uh, Ted Cross decides to go down to his driveway and pick up his Sunday morning paper. Now, as I said a second ago, the houses are not close to the street. They do have very long driveways. Um, so when Ted approached the street where, you know, the paper must've been left like at the encroachment of the driveway, the first thing he noticed was a white gym shoe. And then he saw his son. Eric was lying lifeless on the side of the road. He ran for his wife and Mary Lou came out to her son and then she went back for a blanket to cover him. She also called a neighbor who worked for the local hospital to do CPR. The neighbor tried, but he told the couple that it was too late. Eric was cold. I am going to tell you now about his injuries, but please understand that I am going to tell you this strictly for the purpose of making sure that you understand the severity of this crime and what the killers have gotten away with. 
This is being told with full respect to Eric and his family and those who loved him. Police originally thought that this was a hit and run case. But autopsy results proved that this was intentional and murder. Eric sustained a severe and horrific beating. He had been tied to a car and dragged. There is a report that clothing, blood, and body tissue stretched for over 600 feet. He had horrible rope burns on his body. He had been internally decapitated. And there was a large, round, gaping wound to the lower part of his back that matched the dimensions of a trailer hitch. The base of his skull was crushed. He had multiple broken bones, bruises, and lacerations all over his body. And he had also been run over by a car multiple times. This was not an accident. This was a cruel, cruel, despicable, deliberate act. So we're going to get back to some of these theories. Again, one of them is that when Eric walked past the party store around 1.30, there was another altercation in the parking lot between Eric and Brent. It's either said that he could have potentially been taken from the parking lot or that he did make it home and was taken from his yard. There is a theory that after he was beaten up, he was put into the trunk of Brent's car and taken to the Spalding house. And that is where the trailer hitch was dumped. There may be some truth to that point because there were witnesses who did tell police that they saw Brent toss the hitch into the pond on the property of the Spalding house. And in the year 2000, police actually searched that pond and located the hitch, which did match the wound on Eric's back. Um, it is also said that they would have then taken him back to his house, dumped his body in the street, and then run over it to make it look like a hit and run, and then left. There is another theory that they were hood surfing, which was a thing apparently at that time. I have never heard of it until I started researching this case, but it's essentially when a person is on the hood of the car holding on for dear life while the driver drives erratically. I did hear something that there is a possibility that both Eric and Bill were on the hood and Eric slipped off, like slid off and went under the car, but that would not explain the massive extent of his injuries. Also, if Bill was... Yeah, see, that one I don't know because Bill, and I'm going to tell you what Bill told a reporter because that completely contradicts it. So I don't know if Bill was involved on the hood. I don't know. But there is a possibility that Eric had either been beaten up to the point that they tied him to the hood or um, they just laid him on the hood. I don't know. But I do not think that he was in any state to hold on. Because from from everything that I've read, he was extremely intoxicated. 
So Eric's case basically sat like there was no movement on the case, like no, no arrests made. And, um, people were questioned like Brent Spaulding and, and the other members of this core group were questioned. But at one point, Brian Spaulding senior, who is Brent's father told police, if I go home and my son, and I find out that my son is involved in this, you will never hear from us again. And, he shut down and he was never allowed to talk to police again regarding this. So even the next year, um, as Jackie was moving up, Eric's little sister was moving up into high school. Um, people would even make comments to her about those are the people that killed your brother so, I mean, the the whole town believed they knew who did it. So a cold, after a while, I mean, yeah, the case went cold. There was no, nobody was working this case. A cold case unit was created in the area. And one of the cases they were handed was Eric's. It took them countless hours of research and investigation. But in 2017, five warrants were, were issued um, one of them being for Brent Spaulding, Amber Thomas, Tim Martin, who I know we have not discussed. I do not have a lot of details on him, but he is believed to be part of this core group. Um, Bill Cook. Uh, yeah, the same Bill Cook that's supposedly Eric's best friend and Brian Spaulding Sr., Brent's father. Now, it is also said that Maybrit Spaulding who again was Bill's girlfriend was a part of all of this, but she actually passed away before 2017 when the rest warrants were issued. So she was not included in the warrants. The sheriff's department had done all the legwork. They put in the request for the warrants and they handed all the information over to the prosecutors, but the prosecutor's office refused to move forward. Then in early 2019, the, the current Michigan Attorney General stepped in and announced that they would reopen the investigation. But then in 2020, the new Attorney General at that time felt that there wasn't enough evidence to charge any of the five. The police and sheriff's offers, offices do feel that they know who the killers are, and Eric's army which is a group of volunteers of his family, friends, and strangers who want to help get him justice, have put up billboards all over the Vicksburg area, and they even hold a yearly walk they call Walk Eric Home, which follows the path that he would have taken that night. And on what would have been Eric's 49th birthday, they held a candlelight vigil. And according to police, there was a lot of local media attention at the event. And this actually led to a very important tip that they believe will bring them closer to getting Eric justice. The police said that the core group has essentially built a wall of silence, but they cannot hide. The police say they are coming for them. Now, as I said, Bill Cook did give an interview 
to um and I'm like a not a police investigator but kind of like an investigative reporter he said that he actually blames himself for Eric's death because he left him alone that night to swim with that girl he claims that when he left the party he went to Maybrit Spaulding's house and that Brent was there but he doesn't know what happened next because he fell asleep. He also claims that the next morning, Eric's dad called him at the Spalding house to tell him Eric had been in an accident. Now, it could be that Eric's dad called, um, he could have called, I can't even think straight, I'm sorry. He could have called Bill's uncle's house and Bill said, hey, he's over here. But again, back then, there was no cell phones. There was no find my, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's truth to that. You can't even ask Ted Cross because he has passed away. Um, when the, when the reporter asked Bill about the town and how they treat him bill did state that the entire town does hate him and they they blame him which you know i, un I understand honestly um really all of the core group have struggled over the last 40 years many of them have struggled with substance abuse brent has been in and out of jail and he was actually charged with felony aggravated stalking um which does show that he has a history of controlling relationships and um so that really does not surprise me at all um and bill cook himself has spent some time in jail i have not been able to find any information on tim martin whatsoever so i i wish i had more information on him um here's some additional facts uh brent drove a 71 hunter green pontiac Le Mans, and after eric's murder his car mysteriously disappeared um, there were some, there was some talk that it had been driven into the pond on the property, but again, police searched that and the car was not found. Um, they did have some connections in Florida, so they, it is said that maybe it went, it was sent down to Florida and possibly destroyed. One thing to remember is that this car, although not the murder weapon, would contain evidence. The car did drive over Eric's body. Um, he was tied to the car and dragged. There's going to be evidence on this car. So it does not surprise me that the Spalding family got rid of it shortly after the death. Also, Eric's mom had been out that evening and she came home about 1 a.m. and had not seen anything. So obviously we know that um, at 1 a.m. Eric was not home and probably still at the party. Um, Brent actually has children now and they have, they've, this is a trip, but they have been caught pulling down the signs around Vicksburg, even nowadays, um, with Eric's picture on them to get justice, you know, reminding people they need justice for Eric. And at one point they took the signs home. You're this, this is a trip. They actually pulled the signs down, wrote on the signs, justice for Brenton and then put the signs back up. So they the apple did not fall far from that tree, I'll tell you. They they are some they are real trips. 
Um, another thing that I found really interesting was that when Mary Lou, Eric's mom, called for an ambulance that Sunday morning, she was told that a call that a call had already come in and, and an ambulance was already on the way. Nine one one was not a thing there in nineteen eighty three, and they did not have a record of who called. So somebody called. Somebody saw this happen and called before they found Eric's body. Could it have been one of the people in the car? I do not know. Nobody has come forward to say that it was them that made the call. Uh, Mary Lou went to the hospital with Eric, but Ted stayed behind, and he actually made sure that police collected every possible piece of evidence, even things that probably wouldn't have been collected. He made sure they collected them. He had the forethought to make sure that every ounce of evidence was picked up to um, ensure that his child gets the justice that he deserves. Um, Amber, even though multiple state statements put her in the car in the parking lot with Brent, Tim, Bill, and Maybrit, was not interviewed by the police until December of 1983, and that was six months after Eric was killed. So I find that to be very, very interesting. Um, like what took so long to interview somebody that obviously had a connection when she was finally interviewed, she was given polygraphs. Now I've got three people here that were given polygraphs. Now I do not believe in the science behind polygraphs. They are not admissible. I do not think they can be trusted. You could probably give me run right now and, and ask me questions and I would fail it. Um, but all three of these people were given polygraphs only specifically asked questions pertaining to Eric's murder. Amber took and failed three polygraphs. Bill Cook took and failed one polygraph and Tim Martin took and failed three polygraphs. So I do find it interesting that uh, they all failed the polygraphs that were questions were asked specifically pertaining to Eric's murder. After one of Brent's stints in jail, a reporter stopped him leaving the jail and stated um, and asked him about being listed as the prime suspect in Eric's murder. He actually told the reporter that he has no idea why he'd be considered the prime suspect. He called it a witch hunt and even stated that police aren't going to find what they are looking for, which I definitely find found very interesting that he made that statement. After Eric's death, Brent started to call himself the devil and ended up being sent to a mental institution, but many believe that he was setting up the groundwork for an insanity defense, and I honestly believe that myself. Some reports say that people have come forward saying that Brent was heard saying he wanted to teach Eric a lesson, but again, I do not have proof of that. At one point, the police offered Amber a full immunity deal. She told police that she would take it and tell them what happened that night. But when it came down to the official statement, she actually ended up pleading the fifth. Um, that is very interesting to me because, number one, you're offered like complete full immunity. No jail time. Okay, you're going to walk away with whatever happened that night. It doesn't matter if you tell them something that incriminates you. It, it doesn't matter. But she still pled the fifth. So that makes me feel that somebody got to her. 
And that's scary because even all these years later, this family still has that kind of power. It is believed that Brian Spaulding Sr. paid people off to keep his children from getting into trouble. And that is probably why he was listed as one of the people who a warrant was issued against. So I, I firmly believe that the police actually have evidence that show that he um, had paid people off or had done things to kind of cover this up. Also, all of the kids were gave written statements. And from what I heard, they were very, very close together. Almost kind of like they were all the same statement, which again, I found interesting. Um, perhaps an adult wrote it. And I, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, as I mentioned, Ted Cross, Eric's dad passed away in 2007 and in an interview not too long ago, Mary Lou stated that, you know, she really wants this to be over. Um, she wants to live a life without revenge or bitterness. Um, she really sounds like a, a wonderful mom and a wonderful lady who really just wants answers for her son. Um, there this story is honestly like it's it reminds me of a lifetime movie you know that small town we're going to uh you know protect our own kind of thing I don't understand how they have not pressed charges and and put done something with these kids and well they're not kids they're freaking grown adults now they're older than I am you know and it's it's just it's, somebody has got to take accountability here this was not an accident this was so utterly horrific and these people this boy was 16 years old his life was taken away from him at 16 years old and these I can't I don't even want to call them people these monsters have been living their lives for the last 40 years untouched. I mean, yeah, they, they've probably have not had it easy, but you, you deserve to be in jail. Honestly, you truly deserve to be in jail. And again, I, I apologize for the, for the disarray that this case is in, but there's just, there was no, it just didn't feel like there was a start and finish. There's just so many different possibilities of what could have happened. But regardless, on the evening of Saturday, June 25th, 1983, Eric left his house to go to a party, which his parents did not know about, by the way. Again, they thought he was just going to hang out with Bill. And then by 530 in the morning, he was dead. Those are the two facts. There are no other facts in this case that are known between the time he left his home until the time he they found his body. And the reason I say that is because if you have 15 different stories, you don't know which is fact. There's no there's no written proof, there's no video proof, there's no there's no facts. All we have is speculation about those hours. And um but all the speculation does surround Brenton Spaulding, Amber Thomas, Bill Cook, Tim Martin, Maybrit Spaulding. These are the people 
that more than likely took a life. And uh, he deserves justice. This extremely sweet-looking 16-year-old boy who loved to hunt and fish and hike and be outdoors. And he loved music. And he loved his little sister. So, um, you know, I do hope one day that I can come here and tell you that arrests were made. And if that happens, I will definitely be posting an update. But for now, that's all I got. Until next time, everyone.